0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church Podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Great, so if you have a Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to spend some of our time there. If you missed last Sunday, we were looking at Daniel chapter 1, and we looked at Daniel himself. How did Daniel respond in the midst of a trial, in the midst of exile? And what did we see? Well, we saw first, firstly, that 15-year-old Daniel, 15-year-old, any 15-year-olds here? None? Almost 15? I know we got a few there. All right. Anybody want to be, Chris wants to be 15. (laughs) But 15-year-old Daniel's been kidnapped. A big nasty king called King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll call him King Neb from now on, invades Jerusalem and he takes kids captive, one of which was Daniel. And, And then the book of Daniel begins like this in Daniel chapter 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He's only been king for three years. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That word is a strong word. He obliterated it. He destroyed it. He, he, he brought his pagan practices in, and he took captives back, people, and treasure. And it says in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That is a startling verse. Verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar seems to have all the power and seems to be in control. But verse 2 clarifies for us that actually King Nebuchadnezzar is merely a pawn in the hands of the true king who is... Lord of creation. It's the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see the reign of God even over all the trials of history. And while this is all going on, the people of God are distraught and sad, but not Daniel because everyone else wants to sit down and weep by the rivers of Babylon. Remember? By the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and they wept But not Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends stood up. Stood up under the pressure and stood up in faithfulness for God. Daniel didn't stand alone. As we're going to see today, Daniel also had some friends with him. Some faithful friends were also kidnapped. So here we go, Daniel chapter 3. What we're going to find in Daniel chapter 3 is that King Nebuchadnezzar has decided to build a monument to himself. A monument of weird proportions. Think of this. It was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. In other words, it was enormously tall and absurdly thin. It would have looked like a rocket jutting into the sky. But what's his point? His point is that this would be the place where people would bow down and worship, where people would acknowledge him as king over all the earth. And so we pick up the story, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, down to verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had st- set up. In verse four, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigron, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, couldn't he have not just said that in the beginning, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. We are familiar, most of us, I reckon with this story. But the story is quite simple, that when the musicians start playing, everyone, and he goes to great lengths to describe everyone, anybody of any sort, any economic standing, is to bow and worship. And what we will find is that these three teenagers, by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, commonly known as Yarshak, Meshach, and Abungalow, if you want to remember that, will not bow. They will not bow to the king's orders. And so a case of civil disobedience is lodged against them, and they are given one more chance, the original, turn or burn. The original. And so we're going to study this passage briefly this morning under these three headings. They didn't bow, they didn't bend, and they didn't burn. Here we go. Verse 8, it goes on. It says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, down to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So there's an accusation. These jealous Babylonian astrologers come in And they run to the king, and they accuse these three men of crimes. Then, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... He's going to test them right there in his presence. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, tigron, trigon, let me get that right, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And so the king issues a threat on the spot to kill them, but at the same time, he makes an interesting comment in verse 15. What we see here is that King Neb is not only interested in obedience, he's also interested in some spiritual dynamics. There are spiritual dimensions involved here. In many ways, this was kind of like the battle of the gods, no doubt, Neb saw himself as a God, but he, he also is instituted a way of life here that really illustrates who is the God amongst the gods. And it's hinted at in verse 15 at the end, it says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And so he's, he's issuing a, a contest of sorts. And these three young men refuse to bow which obviously is a violation, violation of the king's command, and it was civil disobedience, and it was religious defiance. And so they're defying the king, they're defying the king's order, civil disobedience to the state, as well as religious defiance. And the reason why this is justified, before you get any crazy ideas that we just go on a campaign and start uh, disobeying civil authorities. The reason this was justified was because it involved worship. This is the reason. Worship in this chapter is mentioned 11 times in connection with bowing to the image. So it's not just a case of civil disobedience. It's actually religious defiance. It involves worship. And so when everyone else fell to their knees and bowed in worship, these three young men were left standing. And there before the king, there they stood. They didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. They just stood before the mightiest king on earth at that particular point. At least in their minds, he's just ransacked the whole of Jerusalem. He's taken them captive to Babylon. I mean, I'm just thinking maybe they could, have, they could have possibly had a little conference, the three of them, you know, before this music starts. And before the music starts, they've got to make, quickly make up their minds, are we going to bow? Are we going to bend? Are we going to burn? I mean, this is the realities. I mean, let's consider for a minute some of the, the reasons they could have given. They, they could have thought like this, you know, well, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do, Right? That could have been the philosophy. That could have been their kind of cultural narrative that they grab onto. Or how about this one? Let's just pretend to bow down outwardly, but in our hearts we're standing up. I wonder if that would fly. Maybe for King Neb, but not not the true king. Or maybe they could have reasoned, well, the king, you know, the king's been so good to us. You know, yes, he's taken us captive, but he's fed us, he's kept us. We're actually working for the king. We're in government and we're working for the king. You know, now's not a good time to be ungrateful, right? Or, Or maybe this one. You know, no one back in Jerusalem will ever know. No one in Jerusalem will ever know whether we bowed or not. Or my personal favorite, everyone's bowing. Everyone's bowing, so let's bow. The, the reality is if, if you want to compromise, you'll find a way. And so in the end, these three young men refuse to bow. Why? Well, I think there are two main reasons, and there might be a whole lot more. But the two that stand out, and we mentioned this last week, is because the same, we see the same thing in Daniel. Daniel's resolve was because he had a place to stand. He had something to, upon which to stand. And, and if you're not going to bow and you're going to stand, where are you going to stand? And, and so the place they were going to stand was settled, and they were standing upon God's word. And, and no doubt in their minds would have been God's word to them from the Exodus story, from the from the lips of Moses. God spoke through Moses and said, you shall have no other gods before me. And these words are ringing in their ears, and so they can't bow because they this is a matter of worship. And so they had a place to stand, but, but notice this. They also had people with which to stand. They weren't standing alone. And I want to say to us as a church, going into this year and going into the future, the, the Babylonian systems of the worlds will continue to set up edifices or, or cultural narratives or stories that they want us to bow to. And how, how are we going to respond? And, and we need to, these two things need to be settled. We need to know where we're going to stand and who are we standing with. And these guys had a place to stand upon the truth of God's word and they had people to stand with. There were three of them. And so the first thing we need to just acknowledge here in terms of application is you can't stand alone in Babylon. Unless you have something upon which to stand and people to stand with. Christian community is critical, it's essential. Christian friends are critical. If you don't have them, the pressures could be enormous. But they had friends and they had the word of God. Secondly, they didn't bend. They didn't bend. Look, look what happens next from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, they're not being antagonistic. They're not being rebellious. They're actually confessing their guilt. They're not coming up with excuses. They're actually going, you're right, we are disobeying. There's no reason to try and justify what we're doing before you. But then they go on and says, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, That we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and his expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, the problem with this story is we all know how it ends, right? So try and just push that to the back of your mind for a minute. Let's just be in the moment with these three young men. All right? We we don't know how it's going to play out. That's hinted at in the text. In fact, we're going to analyze that. But these three guys have no idea whether God was going to deliver them or not going to deliver them. They didn't receive advanced warning. There wasn't a moment where where everything just slowed down and an angel appeared. That doesn't happen. There's no special revelation. There's no writing on the wall. That comes later. Uh, There's no angels whispering into the ears saying, don't worry, guys, God will deliver you. No, no, none of that. We don't know at this point. They basically are standing before the king ready to die. What do you do with men like that? Now, let's just consider their faith. I want you to notice something about the unbending nature of their faith. Firstly, what we see here is that faith admits reality. We see this in verse 16. They, they are ready to confess. We are guilty. We are guilty before you, King. We have, we have sinned according to your law, according to your standard. We have sinned. There's no excuses there's no bravado there's no denial of reality somehow in christian circles there's been the strange idea that if you have faith you never admit reality that's not true we don't have to deny reality to be faithful or full of faith no no faith admits reality things are terrible things suck things are bad i'm sick That's not a denial of faith. It's a confession of reality. It's what you do next that matters. So they don't deny the faith. They don't make faith declarations. (laughs) They don't try and speak things into being. They just honestly confess their guilt, first thing. Secondly, faith is not only admitting reality, but faith is trust in God's ability Verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So either way, either God will deliver us and we will live or God will deliver us by death because there is hope after death. But this isn't faith in faith. Do you notice? It's not faith in faith or or faith in anything else. No, no, it's faith in God's ability. They are entrusting themselves to the sovereignty of God. Those little words, God is able. They knew what God could do, but they didn't know whether he would do it. That's faith. You don't need to deny reality. You don't need to try and confess reality. You just need to trust God and his ability. Trust his reality. They had a big vision of a big God, and their faith was only as big as the vision that they had it in. And you can have a small faith. That's okay. It's okay to have a small faith as long as you have a big God, a God who is able Thirdly, faith is accepting God's will. Admitting reality, trusting God's ability, but then accepting God's will. Because verse 18, but but if not, if God doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What we see here, church, is that there are various stages in the life of faith. And this might be, let me submit to you, this might be the highest stage of faith. The highest stage of faith is that they are willing to submit to the will of God. Sometimes people think that if you say, but, let your will be done, is a a kind of backpedaling of faith. You know, like you pray for someone who needs to be, Healed. And then you go, but, but Lord, let your will be done. And then it's like, oh, I've just undone all my faith. Like it's all unraveled because I've entrusted it to God's sovereign will. What nonsense. No, no, the highest stage of faith is when we're actually willing to yield to the sovereign will of God. And we pray in faith, believing in faith, trusting in God's ability, but then resting in his will. Amen. And so these three young men had a big God and they weren't sure how they would be delivered. They knew they would be delivered, by life or by death. They were sure of who God is, they were sure of of, of the fact that God would glorify Himself in this, whether by life or whether by death. And then the best part, final part, they don't burn. So they don't bow, they don't bend, and miraculously, they don't burn. Let's read the last part of the story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he called or declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had had any power over their bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. The story ends clear. The story is so clear and how it ends. They are protected. There is praise from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, and there is promotion. Let's just think these through a little bit. The king gives praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He acknowledges that there is only one true God. That there is only one Most High. And then he's questioning, well, who is this fourth person in the fire? We, we threw three in, and then there's, there's a fourth. Who is the fourth? Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, and he, he sees three, and then suddenly he sees that there's four. Walking, unharmed, unbound. And he calls the fourth, the son of the gods, which is an interesting confession for a pagan king. Most scholars, most theological scholars agree that this was an Old Testament theophany. It was Jesus himself who appeared in the furnace. Now I want you just to log this, right? that notice that the Lord Jesus comes not before they're thrown in. That would have been helpful. And we don't see the fourth guy after they come out. I mean, he calls them out and three come out, not four, right? And so where is Jesus? Jesus is in the fire with them. He doesn't reveal himself before. He doesn't reveal himself after. He reveals himself on the inside, And I think that we need to just acknowledge that actually sometimes God doesn't put out the fires in our lives, but He wants to be with us in them. I mean, just think of the miracle. The miracle is remarkable, but He could have just extinguished it, maybe. But He doesn't put it out. He doesn't put out the fire. He gets in there with them, He preserves them, then they come out and they get promoted. God doesn't always remove the fiery trial. Sometimes God allows us to go through the fiery trial, and it's there that we meet with Jesus, where sometimes we come face to face with our own frailty, with our own humanity, and it's in those moments where we meet the living God. There's no doubt that in this particular part of the story, there are some wonderful echoes of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus seen in the story. Because one day Jesus himself would bow. He would bow to his father's will. He would not resist. He would not refuse. He would bow to his father's will. And upon a wooden cross, he would experience the fires of hell. Jesus would suffer the the, the fiery darts of the enemy and all of our sin was laid upon him. And in that moment, Jesus would drink the cup of the Father's wrath poured out for our sin. But Jesus too would be rescued through that fiery trial he would burn, he would die, but then he would be raised and he would be promoted to king above all kings. And so church, what do we learn? Well, there are seasons where we will go through hardship, we will go through trial. We are in Babylon. Wherever you are, we are in Babylon. We are exiles. We are sojourners. This isn't our home. We are passing through And there are going to be times where we are called to refuse to embrace the ways of the world. We will be put into situations where we will be tempted to compromise our faith. Will we bend? Will we bow to the pressure? And so my encouragement to you is these three things. You need a place to stand, and that's the Word of God. There's going to be lots of narratives. There's going to be lots of ideologies. There's going to be lots of stories. There's going to be the next big thing. But where are you going to stand? What are you going to stand upon? And who's going to stand with you? Do you have friends? Do you have Christian friends? Do you have church community to stand with? And then most importantly, Are you friends with Jesus? Because when we go through the fire, and you will, the fires will come. You need all three. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We pray that by your spirit, you'd work in our hearts. Lord, we need fresh faith Not faith in faith, not faith in our confessions, but faith in our sovereign God. And so I want to pray, Lord, that you would flood our hearts now. Come, Holy Spirit, and flood our hearts with faith in Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you bowed to the Father's will, not for any other reason than because it it was the only way, the only way of salvation, the path of life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you experienced the fires of hell on the cross for our sake. And we thank you, Father, that you raised your son from the dead, from the grave, and promoted him to glory. We pray that this gospel would be enough to strengthen our hearts this morning. That this gospel is strong enough, big enough, resilient. This is a resilient gospel upon which we stand. It has lasted, it has outlasted, all the critics of the ages. It has outlasted all the philosophers. It has outlasted every sexual revolution. This gospel stands and we stand upon it. We rest our hope fully on the finished work of Jesus. And we thank you that we get to stand with friends and brothers and sisters. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the dearest friend of all. What a friend we have. In Jesus. Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray for fresh faith to rise in our hearts. As we go into this world, as we face the Bob- Babylons of our day, as we faith face the King Nebuchadnezzar's of our day, we pray that you would fill our hearts with faith that our God is able and that we can stand. We can stand for truth.